That's a, like a re- that's the million dollar question because <laughs> like it's you know it's so sensitive and like I actually just this this morning fired like one of my managers in <laughs> one particular city. Um and you know I think if I look back, like for me, it was really like, I manage my properties. I manage other people's properties the way I manage my, my own properties. So that means with the level of attention and with the um, ethics that I would apply when doing my own stuff. So I don't want to spend money that I wouldn't spend on my own properties. And I don't want to let stuff go with inattention. And I think those are like really the two things you need to, well, there's actually three things you need to control for. Welcome to the Right Club Podcast, where the focus is on helping you, the real estate investor, advance to the next level. And now let's join this week's hosts and share ways for you to customize your life. Hey, Right Club Nation, it's Sarah Larby here. I'm going to be speaking with the one and only Terry Shower, who is not only a jiu-jitsu world champion, She's a two-time world champion in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. She also has a best-selling book called Mindful Landlord, currently available on Amazon, is a real estate investor, also started a real estate investing management company, and so much more. So I hope you guys enjoy the podcast. Don't forget to check out our events. We are doing some live events now as well, therightclub.com forward slash events, and come say hi. And if you have any questions, it's sarah at therightclub.com. Terry, welcome to the Right Club podcast. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited. So we were talking a little bit about this. You're in Montreal. That's I was right. actually born in Montreal. I have family from Quebec City, and then we moved to Ontario when I was very, very young. But I love Montreal. I love the food there. I love the salmon tartare. Like they have the best. <laughs> they have the best tartare. They don't have that here. But, but for our audience, give us a little bit of background on who you are. Vast question. I'll try to give you a short version. So basically I'm an investor and property manager. So that's the hat that I've worn for the longest in my career. I started managing properties when I was 19 and I became an investor at 26. So I've been doing that for just over 20 years now. And in the last few years, I've gotten into more into sort of coaching. I just wrote a book called The Mindful Landlord. And so my secret sauce is kind of how to bring more mindfulness and macro picture into what we're doing on the ground in real estate, especially with managing, but also in investing more generally. Very cool. So, so what made you decide to write a book? (laughs) Well, I think I always wanted to write a book. Actually, I've had an academic background and and I was like, had a book in me that was looking for a topic. Uh, And I guess the ideas around mindfulness have been cooking around ever since I was an athlete in combat sports for a long time. And the or ideas around mindfulness, like really helped me succeed in that arena. And then I noticed that I was applying them to real estate as well. And then I realized that there was kind of a need for those ideas to come into the real estate field. Cause I feel like in martial arts, you kind of have no choice, but to like align yourself mentally. Whereas in real estate, that's really like not something that we spend a lot of time doing, I think. <laughs> oh, very cool. So, you know what, I, I want to ask you about martial arts for a second, because my, my husband's into jujitsu. Like he literally goes every single day, probably sometimes twice a day. What, what martial arts do you do? Same thing. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I was, no, I, I was kickboxing semi-pro for 10 years and then jujitsu was supposed to be my retirement sport. And then it ended up actually like turning into the same thing as boxing just 10 years later. 
Oh, wow. Very cool. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So, so maybe just give us some examples of what, like when you're saying mindfulness and tying that into landlording and managing and, and real estate, what does that actually entail? Like give us some like concrete things that like somebody can almost even just start doing tomorrow. Sure. So I'll give you like a, a very simple example that I think everyone can relate to. So one principle in mindfulness is called a taming the monkey mind. And a monkey mind is basically, if you imagine what a monkey does, like swinging from one branch to the next, looking for the next shiny object. And this can kind of be an unpleasant mental phenomenon where you just have too much going on in your head. And that can be something that happens in relationship to stress. It can also be just something that with the pace of our lives happens and it kind of ends up polluting your focus and making you feel like you're scattered. And so like one mindfulness technique would be learning how to tame the monkey mind. And that's kind of like working with a puppy. So you have to constantly bring it back on task, bring it back on task, bring it back on task. And like, that's something you can do through meditation. There are also other like sort of less sitting meditation, heavy ways of doing that. But that would be like one example of, of, of something that, you know, people can do to increase mindfulness. And like in real estate, like when you're fielding calls, when you have a crisis situation going on, or when you're going into high pressure negotiations, it's easy to have too much going on in your head. And so just learning to kind of bring that down a level and be able to focus and keep your mind on track is super helpful. That is pretty cool. So mindfulness is often taught when you do like these like business, like big companies will, will do it for their employees and whatnot and, and courses on mindfulness, but it is pretty cool that you're, you're tied into real estate investing and, and that kind of stuff. So do you have like specific concrete examples and action items throughout the book as well about this? Yeah. Well, basically the book is, it's kind of like cutting back and forth. So one chapter will be a very hands-on, okay, what do, how do I run my property management practice? How do right. I assess buildings? So that's kind of, I think just very, like a typical real estate investment book. And then every second chapter is a how-to actionable mindfulness technique. So I mentioned monkey mind, but like there are a bunch of other ones, be it like it's called something called watching the thinker where we learn to tone down anxiety. There's a whole lot on overcoming fears because I think especially when people start out or when they're trying to level up, it's very easy to become intimidated by the unknown or to kind of get into analysis paralysis. And I think that gets referred to in the real estate industry, but I don't see that a lot of people actually really get into, okay, so I have this problem. I know I have this problem and it's self-defeating. How do I actually work with what's going on in my head to be able to perform at the level I want to perform at? Terry, when, you, when you're in that middle of that negotiation, <laughs> what what can you do right at that moment because that's i mean short of kind of saying hey i'm just going to take two minutes out for a mindful session i i guess there's nothing wrong in kind of saying oh well, hang on this isn't going in the direction we want it to go and kind of using that to slow things down but what can somebody do right in the in the thick of something well, I think there's a bit of preparation that goes into this. And you know what I, I mentioned with Sarah before is just I, I import a lot of this from the combat sport environment. So if your your question is like, okay, if I'm in the middle of the fight and all of a sudden things are going in a way I don't want, what can I do? Well, the answer is you should have started a month ago and you should have prepared mentally. And one of the, the, the ways of thinking about it is that every problem you encounter is a question. And you need to have answers for all of the questions. And so before you go into a negotiation, you need to be crystal clear about what you want. And if you can anticipate what some of the sticking points might be, that's just generally mapping out how you want the interaction to go. But then even in terms of your own personal performance, you can sort of ana analyze like, where did I have problems in the past 
did I not ask for enough? Was I not clear enough in my asks? Was it not structured enough? And then you can sort of track that and be like, okay, this is where I sort of messed up on the last time. Like an athlete would watch tape and be like, okay, I should have done something here, here, and here. And then the inflection point of that fight would have gone in a different way. Well, negotiations are the same. And you can like, the more you approach things with a discovery mindset, as opposed to a stress mindset, then you, you put it in like, okay, I'm going to try things now. And like, I tried this last time. It didn't go how I wanted. Let me try a different thing and see what happens because ultimately we, we take everything so seriously, but it's all a learning process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Really well said. So obviously you're investing, you, you've got your, your jujitsu and everything else. I mean, you're, you're really busy. And then you decided to also take on property management. Walk us through what that looks like. Is that your properties? Is that everyone else's properties on top of that? And let's, let's talk about that piece. Yeah, sure. So, but I think actually that was the first piece, right? Like I started managing properties kind of by accident when I was 19, I I actually went to U of T and I ended up living in a campus co-op back then, which was like this student run cooperative and like my house didn't have a manager. And so I move in there for my parents' house, 19, And my housemates vote me house manager. And like, I have no idea what I'm doing. So I kind of just got thrown into it. And then I enjoyed that so much that fast forward five years and I kind of wanted to sideline, actually studied till I was like 31. I did a PhD, but like basically through my studies, I kind of started managing first. I rented a big house. Then I parceled out the rooms to like pay for my rent. Then I borrowed a down payment from dad bought my first triplex, turned it into student housing. And then that kind of turned into a business. And so when I finished my PhD, I actually went to work in a property management company to learn the business. And then I came back to Montreal and opened my own company. So like, basically I was managing properties before any, anything else on the list started. (laughs) And what, and what, what does that look like now? What, how many properties are you managing? Well, at the most, uh, we got up to about 200 doors. And then I realized that the job that I was doing for my clients, I could make way more money if I did it for myself. (laughs) And so now basically I'm in the process of slowly paring down the units that I manage for other people and then increasing the units that I own myself. And I've actually, this year, I hired a property manager for the first time. So that was like a big move of delegation. And and now my company is turning more into kind of like oversight of those investments. So we delegate some stuff out to external management, but we keep some stuff internally. And so like the staff that the staff that I've kept is basically doing that. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break from the show. Right Club Nation, just want to take a quick moment here and introduce you to Private Money for Mortgages, which is a mortgage brokerage. And the great thing about Private Money for Mortgages is if you are looking to do a flip or a burr or something that requires a little bit more work where you might not get traditional bank financing, a great opportunity to still acquire that property is with Private Money. So Private Money is going to be at some point in your journey a necessary tool for you or maybe somebody that you know, another investor to build your portfolio and knowledge is key. You can book a discovery call with Susan and her team to learn why, how, and when to use private mortgages in your real estate journey. You can visit their website, which is privatemoneyformortgages.com. And there's a free guide to private mortgages that you can get there. And also Susan can help you with a vetting process. So when you are looking at properties, whether it's a flip property or a burr property, they can assist you with finding different financing options for these types of purchases. 
And again, it could come with a higher cost. Most likely it will because it's private money, but if it is executed properly with a proper exit, that is going to be key. So again, private money for mortgages, which is the number four.com. And now back to the show. And now back to the show. It allows you to have a lot more control as well, right? Of over your own properties. And I think and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there's not that much money in managing properties in the long-term basis for others. However, yeah, yeah. I think when it comes to your own portfolio and keeping control and, and creating your processes and your expectations and ensuring that they follow what you want, uh, rather than paying somebody 8% or 7%, you might as well take that in-house and, and have that person be your right hand for everything property management standpoint, pay them on a salary or, or whatever it is. But I find that that is almost an easier way to do it because now they're following exactly your steps, your processes that you put in place. Or, uh, let me know if you agree or disagree or, or what your thoughts are on that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's a very interesting thing because I, I sort of started a property management business and then discovered after the fact that like, it's kind of hard to scale and it's kind of hard to make money. And then what I also discovered is that in the industry, usually people take on management business as a feeder for other stuff. So like, for example, I also have my broker's license. I have like, I work with a couple of brokers and the property management portfolio was kind of feeding those brokers as well. Right. So, because if somebody then wants to liquidate something, then the first, you're the first person that knows about it. So that's one thing. The other business model I've seen, and like, I'm just not super into construction, but for people who are into construction, I've seen people who have construction companies really feed the construction company with management business. So I think it ends up being kind of like a gateway that often people will take that on at break even in order to get access to different things. And today in how I run my stuff, I, the few clients that I have kept are people that I ended up doing joint ventures with. So it also becomes a way for me of vetting people that I'm going to end up working with, because if I manage your property for six months or a year, I'm going to know who you are before we get into a joint venture together. And if I, if how it fits into my, my, what I do today, that's kind of more what it is, is that like, I get, tend to get involved with someone. I see, okay, how are you running your stuff? Maybe I manage something and then we're like, okay, I feel comfortable enough with you. Let's maybe move forward and, and, and do business together. I think also in terms of it being management, being kind of my secret sauce, like you can make money with renos, right? Like some people do the flip. Some people do the, I think it's Burr model where they renovate mm -hmm. repeat. But like, if you're really good at property management, even if you hire a manager, you're going to be able to make money just by bringing properties that are not poorly managed into a well-managed situation. And I think, especially in Montreal, there's so much of that just because like we have this ecosystem here that's like very rent controlled and a lot of like older landlords, landlords who are turning over and really we're not managing professionally. So like if you have an eye for managing, like I will go for things that my colleagues want nothing to do with because the management's going to be too much of a pain. And mm -hmm. when you're talking about vetting, what, so for a real estate investor listening and thinking, I'm going to hire my own property manager. What are the sort of things that you would advise they look out for in, in terms of hiring? Oh, that's a, like, a re that's the million dollar question because <laughs> like, it's, it's so sensitive. And like, I actually just this, this morning fired like one of my managers in <laughs> one particular city. I think 
if I look back, like for me, it was really like, I manage my properties. I manage other people's properties the way I manage my, my own properties. So that means with the level of attention and with the ethics that I would apply when doing my own stuff. So I don't want to spend money that I wouldn't spend on my own properties. And I don't want to let stuff go with inattention. And I think those are like really the two things you need to, well, there's actually three things you need to control for, but like the first one is inattention, because given that it's such a low margin business, companies tend to take on as much as possible and just really pay minimum attention. So they like, won't necessarily go to, go to the properties. Like issues can be, if the tenants don't call issues can be unaddressed for a really long time. And like, that's one pitfall. Another pitfall is like the financial aspect, because if you're not creating a certain amount of checks and balances, like you don't know if it's in your properties in another city or you don't go verify everything they do, they can overcharge or they can, things cannot be done properly. And so actually to tell you how we're organized now, like basically I have an assistant who like has a route that like every week she goes by and checks what the property manager has done. So like before I pay for a bill somewhere, she goes and checks this before this happens, there's an extermination. She's going to just show up there for 15 minutes and look. And yeah, it's like a little, it costs a little bit more, but the fact of catching issues in the bud, like for example, we had a janitor that wasn't showing up and like, because the, the manager didn't go and check, he didn't realize that things weren't being cleaned. So the janitor was charging, they, the company wasn't doing the cleaning. And if we had the tenants didn't call and we don't check, we could not realize for six months. Mm-hmm. So Yeah. Unfortunately, some, some people, the good ones, the really good ones are going to be consistent for a long, long time also come with more money. And, and also it's, it's hard to find people nowadays, right? It's hard to find people. And I don't know if you're experiencing that with your real estate business or or the management piece of it as well. But when you have people, you do want to hang on to them, but there's a lot of people out there that you're unfortunately going to have to hire and fire fast. Yeah. Yeah. We actually, it's actually funny because like I have, I have a podcast and we did like an episode specifically on this with, uh, with my co-host where we hired actually like a rental agent to do some rentals for us. And it was like a complete catastrophe. And he was so disappointed. Like he was really gutted about this. And I was like, look, I've been doing this for, for 20 years. And like, usually I hire someone and I just don't let them near the breakable stuff for the first (laughs) month or two, because I'm assuming that I'm going to be batting 50%. And like, even when unemployment is not as low as it is today, like I've just in this industry, that's what it's been. That's what it's been because often when you're recruiting entry level, it's not people that have a whole bunch of experience. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, just throw them in, see if they swim and if they swim, keep them. (laughs) (laughs) That's probably good advice. (laughs) And and where, where's the future for you? Because you're kind of transitioning your business now to it more being your portfolio. What? What plans do you have going forward? Well, I think more of the same. I really loved writing my first book. I actually have a second book that's in the works. I started a a podcast during COVID, which I'm also having a lot of fun with. So doing those kind of more creative aspects, continuing on on that trajectory. And then as far as investing goes, I'm pretty happy with this slow moving model that I've built, which is I really vet people very carefully and then don't go at a, a very quick pace. And I think the the Canadian market is like in a bit of a weird space right now. And like, I'm sitting on my hands happily and being like, wow, I'm glad I didn't over leverage. And I'm glad I didn't overcommit because like, sure, maybe I was going a bit slower than some of my colleagues at a certain point, but now I'm sleeping well. So mm-hmm. absolutely. It's about mitigating the downside as well as taking opportunities yeah. and, and running with them and, and balancing that out. 
Can I ask like what your main strategy has been to acquire properties? Is it like buy and hold? Is it the birth strategy? Are you renting long-term, mid-term, short-term, doing pre-construction? And then where are the majority of your- So buy and hold, like I said, I'm not a real construction geek. I'm more of a management geek. And so my sweet sweet spot is I really do like low income stuff. And so I will look for areas like I wouldn't even say up and coming. Like I'm not even, I'm not looking at up and coming. I'm looking at down and probably likely to stay that way for a while. And in that area, you end up finding a lot of poorly managed properties because I guess in Montreal, there's a little bit, a bit of slumlording going on where people have mm-hmm. neglected stuff. And, and are they multifamily, the majority of them? Yeah. 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 I mean, we really don't have much single family stuff here. So yeah, like multifamily in those kind of areas. I do also invest in uh, Trois-Rivières, which mm-hmm. is about an hour and a half out of Montreal, uh, which is uh, like also kind of a low income area, but it's a bit less difficult, let's say, than some parts of, of Montreal. And so that you also asked me what what's next. I think through writing Mindful Landlord, I think I became a bit more aware of the actual real crunch of affordable housing. And watching a lot of my tenants like really struggle through COVID makes me want to get into affordable housing maybe even more, potentially with some of the programs that CMHC is coming out to be able to facilitate that and actually like provide that kind of housing. Because as like, like I said, I I see my tenants, like there's just a problem generally within, I think a lot of the metropolises in in Canada and for sure in Montreal. And uh, yeah. We're going to take a quick break from the show. Are you a real estate investor or entrepreneur looking to get out there and network with some awesome people? Then the Have Your Cake and Eat It Too is a retreat you won't want to miss. Treat yourself to a three-day retreat, focus on your health, wealth, and time for yourself on the site of the new luxury Inspire Beach Resort. This retreat will include live bands, great speakers, yummy food, delicious drinks, fun activities, and lots of time for networking. For more information and to get your ticket, visit www.saralarby.com. And now back to the show. And, sorry, I was going to ask you, do you invest outside of? Or? Not yet. I'm looking at trying to do it when the, the market warms up and I get some capital. <laughs> do, you, do you know where you'd want to go if it wasn't for Quebec? Yeah. So actually I've been, I used to live in Marseille, which was actually where I worked in a property management firm. And I actually France, really... Yeah like what France, like I like what France is, is, is doing these days. They've had much less inflation than us. And Marseille actually in France kind of ended up being a bit like Florida in the States. Like a lot of people move down there. There's a lot of like work from home Parisians who've moved down there. And I think it's just not quite happened yet. So that would be my next call. <laughs> Very cool. I know nothing about the Fran- like the France, French market, but I'm sure you can let us know all about it once, once you do it. But I, that is, that is pretty cool. I do want to go back to the, the, the niche that you're essentially looking into, which is the affordable housing. And for somebody that's trying to figure out like, what, what does that definition even look like? What does that mean? You talked about, I think the MLI select with CMHC, where you can get some points and stuff. Can you, can you give us like somebody listening to this and trying to figure out, okay, what does that mean that it's X amount less, you know, how affordable is affordable? Like, what does that, what does that mean? So basically like the CMHC gives us criteria to analyze that. So in Montreal, it works out to 1,070 a door. So if you're below the 1,070 a door line, your, your housing is considered affordable. Now, unfortunately, the way they define that is a little bit too blanket. So like you could rent a studio for 1,070 that's like not affordable, but like if you're renting a two bedroom for that price, that would be considered to be affordable housing here. And like, 
mm-hmm. you know, how, how, I, how can I say that? It's like, you kind of, you see it, you know it when you see it kind of thing, because if you're going to certain districts or certain areas, like, and the rent points in those areas, when you see, for example, $800, two bedrooms, you kind of know what to expect when you see that price point. And we also will know like what districts of the city, those kind of things are available. And, um, you know, I, I don't know exactly like what you want me to develop with that, but it's then you're likely to inherit a bunch of kind of social problems along with that, because that ends up being there's poverty. There's a certain amount of drugs. There's a certain amount of precarious income, mental health issues. Mm-hmm. And so those are not always the easiest properties to manage, but like, I feel like you can kind of add value there that actually for some of the residents ends up being a plus. Like if you're able to address like a pest control issue, maybe get rid of one tenant who's polluting the whole space for everybody else, you're actually able to, with the calculations we do, we don't jack our rents like crazy. So we'll like, we'll adjust to that affordable point and then leave it there and then provide acceptable housing for people who don't have a whole lot of disposable income. And so like, I feel, I feel good about that. I feel good about having well-managed properties that are not super expensive and to not approach it with this like very extractive logic where I'm trying to get like the absolute most I can for a door. I want to adjust to market value and have it be well-run and then provide that service for people. So. And, And what are you able to do in terms of rent increases in Quebec? How, mm-hmm. does that, how does that differ from other provinces? So we have a, a pretty strong rent control system here where it's uh, used to be called the, the Régie. It's now called the, the TAL, Tribunal Administratif du Logement. And basically every, every January, they come out with a rent increase spreadsheet. So you have to take your expenses from the previous year, plug them in, and then it spits out a number at the end. Um, and basically like, that's what I do with my investments. It's what I do with the clients that I manage. When you're carrying a tenant over you, that's what the increase you're allowed. And we increase like scrupulously with, with that. And we provide the tenants, even the calculation so that everything's very transparent and you can kind of avoid people contesting that. And then the place where it gets a bit sticky is between tenants. So between tenants, you're technically supposed to increase by the same with the same logic, but nobody in practice does that. So then you end up in this whole political conversation of like, does rent control in between tenants actually make sense? Who are you helping? Who are you hurting? I mean, there's, there's definitely, I I mean, for me, I'm, I'm against that obviously as, as a landlord and an investor that is, again, there's, there's, there's good and bad to everything. I'm not going to kick the tenants out just to necessarily increase the rent, but we should be able to do it in order to get back to market rents. And then as soon as you start, in my opinion, as soon as you start putting too many sticks in the wheels, then people pivot and they go out and they go out of the country, they go yeah. somewhere else, yeah. right? Ultimately. Yeah. But but it is interesting because there are talks about doing that in Ontario. Yeah. About once a tenant leaves. And I don't actually know how they would track it. How are they tra- like how are yeah. they tracking it in Montreal right now? So we have a a government lease that like we have to use. And on the government lease, there's a place where you have to declare the old rent. And if you don't declare it, then they can come back forever. And if the old tenant produces a lease, they can contest the increase. And like, then the regime will actually fix it at what they assume to be the increase based on as if you had done it with the form. Right. So it's kind of honor system, but like basically what happens is because the tenants here are pretty militant, like very often what they'll do is once they leave, they come back, knock on the new tenant's door and be like, here's my lease. How much did she increase it? Oh no, no. Like I've had like multiple times where you you end up at the, at the tenancy board and the, the, both of them show up. Like one has the copy of the old lease. And so like, it's a well-known fact that that 
happens. But just to kind of like tell you, like you have an instinct that this is not a good idea. Well, I actually researched it because like this thing, it made me mad. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to check what is the effect of rent control. And if you actually like go and read the academic stuff on rent control, like imagine that I have, the government tells me that I can sell my apple for 50 cents, but it costs me a dollar to grow an apple. What am I going to do? Well, I'm going to grow oranges because I don't want to deal with that. And Mm -hmm. that's exactly Montreal is losing 5,000 rental units a year because of this. And so then the choice is I am a developer or I'm an investor and I have money to deploy. What am I going to do? I'm going to build condos and then I'm going to sell them to individual people who rent them at $2,000. And all of a sudden we're Toronto, you know? So that's like it's 5,000 units a year is a lot. And I mean, I, I can see that happening. I mean, I would probably, I'd probably sell my portfolio that that would all be rent controlled if that came in. I, I would ex- do exactly that. I would get into more developments and I would take my money out of country. Yeah. I mean, that's just, that's just me personally, because at some point, like we still have increases in insurance, increases in taxes, increases in mortgage rates. Like this is, unfortunately, it's way too regulated. And you look at places like Alberta, where it's a lot less regulated and they have a better balance. And I think it's just going to be at the end of the day, it's a shortage issue. You just got to like find a way to build more houses, mm-hmm. more properties, give investors the ability to do that, less red tape. And the more supply there is going to be out yeah. there, the demand might not be as insane. Like we have less yeah. than 1% vacancy. Yes, of course, because there is nothing and putting more pressure on landlords is going to get less. There's going to be even less inventory because we're going to go somewhere else. Yeah. But so listen, I mean, I, to, I you're on one hand, you're right. There is a, a supply issue. And I think that Canadian metropolis is with urbanization and immigration being what it is. We're all feeling the, the, the population crunch. So I think that's one thing. Mm. But now again, this, I had this, the same gut reaction as mm. you, and then I researched it and it actually turns out that there's kind of a more complex thing going on here with financial markets. And as of the last, whatever, 20, 30 years, mortgages have become something that get, gets packaged, packaged and sold. Mm-hmm. And as REITs and various other institutional players come into this multifamily market, those kind of properties become kind of a safe asset class. And so what's happened is that this financial, what's happening in financial markets bids up the prices of those assets, and then the squeeze gets passed on to the tenants. So, I mean, there is something to be said that as you sell buildings at higher and higher multiples, in order for a landlord to make his profit, there is an an extractiveness, that kind of a logic is there in a way that maybe 20 years ago when I got into the industry in Montreal, it was not like that. Like Mm -hmm. they were selling buildings at 12 times multiples. And the only people who did it were old men with pickup trucks, right? And now there's this new class of investor of which we are a part, I guess, who are in this more fast moving, modern finance, foreign capital environment. Like that's a new phenomenon, relatively speaking. And I think, you know, again, this is the topic of my next book, right? But like that there are, Mm -hmm. there's these like very macro things going on. And I think us as like little investors on the ground, it serves us well to be aware of that because Mm -hmm. like certainly with the mindfulness wanting to act in a way that's not socially destructive and to at least be aware of what's going on allows us to invest and to act in a way that's more socially responsible. So I think those questions are important. That is really cool. Can I ask like where you find a lot of the research? Cause I think it's so interesting. And I like, I love seeing the different points of view, like where, where do you do this kind of research to find out? Okay. Even the, like, I mean, you said a few key things that you've even covered that like most people wouldn't even know about. Hmm. Where's that from coming from? 
Yeah. Well, so, I mean, the CMHC is really great. Like I read yeah. their stuff in back, back to front kind of, so they have great data, like up-to-date data. So if you interpret that back, you can kind of do some analysis there. And then, I mean, I just went into housing policy and like, for example, housing financialization. So there's like all this academic literature on that, on my podcast, I actually interviewed, I have some upcoming episodes with some of the profs who've written about that. Then also urbanization, like all of these kind of things that affect housing rent control, for example, like there were, I don't know if I'm going to sh- throw the names at you if it, if it means anything, but like Hayek, for example, wrote a bunch of stuff on rent control 50, 50, 60 years ago that's still out there. It's available for free. Fraser Institute put out some publications on that. And if you just kind of like Google those policies, like you will come up with the academic papers that kind of give you the whatever, we'll, we'll give you this information. And I guess I have a PhD in communication. So like reading some of that stuff for me, like that's what I do before bed at night. So it's just really fascinating. And, and I find I can't like stop at the surface. I have to understand the why, why are, why do I meet this? And especially like in COVID, when I saw like so many of my tenants just falling off of a cliff with stuff, I'm like, man, what is going on here? Like, why are the precariousness of work or addiction problems? Or like, what are the the social things that are creating the things that we see on the ground? And, And that's just really, I find that really fascinating. That's great. And, and I just wonder if the municipalities are doing that much of a, a research. <laughs> well, it kind of, no. You kind of wonder, don't you? No, no, it drives, no, it actually, it actually drives me crazy. And like, I swear before I got on this podcast, I was like, just clicked on the button, like propose yourself as a candidate for like <laughs> this municipal party, because like, no, it actually makes me mad. Cause like, I think like, you know, I, I spent in my free time, like time reading this. And I feel like when you hear the public dialogue around this, like the politicians have not made the minimum effort to go to the bloody university library and like check out three books on housing policy and just read what works, read what the problems are so that you understand. And it's not like, I mean, in Quebec, we have this real thing of all the evil landlords and we need like a repertory of rents where like every, they want to spend a billion dollars to create this system where like every single rent is written down so that you can never increase it beyond a certain amount. And it's like, what are you guys doing? Like, like, have you researched where this has been done before? And is that money well spent? Or are you better spent, like, better to authorize all basement suite constructions in all of Montreal? Like, mm-hmm. and that costs zero taxpayer dollars. You just need to, like, rubber stamp everybody who wants to do a basement unit construction. And, like, then we'll increase however times the number of houses in Montreal. Yes. Nobody can afford anything. Just let us do additional suites, you know? It seems logical, but unfortunately, they make a lot of decisions without consulting any of us. And like you said, we're always the evil, the the big bad landlords that are out there to like screw everyone over. But ultimately, you know what? It is a business. Yes, it's profitable. Yes, I love it. But there's also cons, and there's there's downsides to it, and there's a lot of red tape along the side along the way too, and there's a lot of hoops that we have to jump through, and then there's also a lot of uncertainty because of the stuff that's happening in Montreal is also being talked about in Ontario. And I I guess I don't, I think, unfortunately, at the end of the day, the tenants are going to suffer because there's going to be less and less, and there's going to be less and less stuff that is even nice, right? Because all of a sudden you can't, you can't increase rents between tenants. Do you think that they're going to be painting and refreshing and cleaning the carpets in between tenants? I mean, you have a tenant turnover, it costs a few grand just to do the tenant turnover every single time a tenant turns over, but you don't increase the rents moving forward. You're probably now getting a tenant to move into really crappy dirty place and over and over and over. So 
Just food for thought. I mean, you know, on that note, Terry, we're going to go to the next part of the podcast. It's our lightning round. We're going to ask you four questions. Everybody guessed the same four questions. Are you ready to play? Yep. Do it. This week's lightning round is brought to you by Butler Mortgages, Canada's number one mortgage brokerage three years in a row. If you need a great mortgage broker to help you with investing in real estate or to help you purchase your next home, reach out to Daniel Patton and Michael Zanzini from Butler Mortgages. You can do that by calling 905-569-8326 or toll free at one 888 and check out their website, butlermortgages.com or by email daniel.patton at butlermortgages.com or michael.zanzini at butlermortgages.com. And let's go to the lightning round. All right, question number one, what is the best advice that you have ever received from another investor or at a network? Do more, <laughs> do more deals. Do more deals, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, what, and why do you think that is? Or what, what is it that you... That you say that because I mean I think you know it's it's rare that people regret the properties that they bought they more regret the opportunities that they passed up on and I for sure know in my career that's the case I think ten years ago if I'd have picked up the properties that I passed on at that time I would be in a better position today so okay you mentioned CMHC but do you have a favorite real estate investing you mean for information yeah. Yeah, no, definitely CMHC. I think that's the, the the easiest one. And the next would be your local university library. Like I actually just went and did the exercise at Concordia. Like most libraries have a community membership. So you can go cost a hundred bucks and go educate yourself because there's such great resources out there. And I feel like people don't take that additional step to really understand what they're doing. And even if you're not interested in the whole social policy thing, just read about market cycles mm -hmm. because right now, like we're going through a, a big revolution and it's as if it caught everyone by surprise. But if you actually understand economics and you understand that the average real estate cycle is 19 years long. And so everybody working today has not seen a proper correction in Canada. And so, okay, we know it's coming. So be mindful of the fact that one day that's going to happen. And so one has to then understand, like, how do market cycles work? What happens? How do you assess where a market is in the cycle? So mm -hmm. versus just reading the news, the news and the headlines in the news <laughs> or like, what's everybody else doing? Like, let me yeah. you know, <laughs> do what my friends are doing. <laughs> back, back to monkey brain. Back to yeah. monkey brain. <laughs> awesome. Number three, what is the one attribute in, in your opinion that has made you most successful? Taking responsibility like hundred percent. And if I could give advice to anybody who's trying to do anything, the when you take responsibility for something, you put it under your control. And when you try to find external reasons for things happening and you don't take ownership, that's when you really stop moving forward because you're placing your results in the hands of something that's outside of your control. I like it. And what do you typically do on a Sunday morning? <laughs> go to the gym <laughs> do you still do jujitsu or are yeah, you yeah. Uh, yeah as well yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a it's that thing once it bites you you can't you can't get it out of you i'm, I'm sure your husband will tell you the same thing <laughs> awesome awesome all right terry where can our right club community find out more and reach out to you yeah. So LinkedIn is probably my social media of choice, Terry Shower on LinkedIn. I also have a website, terryshower.com, and you can check out the book, Mindful Landlord. There's a website for the book, or you can find it on Amazon. Amazing. And what is your podcast called? Real Estate Investors Club. Amazing. All right. Awesome. Terry, thank you so much for being on the show. It was great having you on. 
Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Right Club Podcast, where the focus is on helping all levels of real estate investors advance to the next level and help you customize your life. Be sure to tune in next week at rightclub.com slash podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you get a few seconds, please rate the podcast wherever you're listening. It helps the show get noticed by others like you. And we truly appreciate it. And don't forget to subscribe. 